people communicate love, if you haven't noticed this, in lots of different ways. My friend Janice likes to bake to show you she loves you. It's not great on the waistline, but it, it's a very nice thing to receive. My husband does the same. Um, my dad's a talker, so like, I think I probably get that from him. As a teenager, I would feel super awkward because he would have these like tender emotional moments, like in the car or something, and he'd park, and he'd like, grab my hand and look at me really intensely. Like, I just need you to know I really love you. <laughs> and that super weirded me out as a young teenage girl. <laughs> but now I look back at it fondly. My mom, on the other hand, isn't one to get super emotive with her words. She tends to be more of a doer whenever she comes to visit me. And I've lived all of my adult life away from her in a different city. So whenever she comes, whether it's across the country or across the state, within half an hour, inevitably she is like, cleaning something in my kitchen or a spot she finds on the walls. And I used to feel like super uh, embarrassed every time she would start doing this. Like, oh man, she thinks I'm such a slob. <laughs> Clearly I must be such a slob. My mom feels compelled as soon as she gets off the plane to clean my house. Um, but over time I recognize, no, this is just the way that she shows me she loves me. And so now when she comes and cleans my house, I receive it with lots of joy. My kids each have their own way. Gwen loves to draw us pictures right now. So like pretty much every night, you know, she'll kind of go in her room and just like get going on the pictures and then she's like slides them under the door. It's pretty cute. Um, Junior's a cuddler, likes to cuddle up. Um, Elliot at this point is in that, you know, almost 13, boy phase where at least maybe it's just him like communicating love to me at this point I think is him taking the time to tell me about his favorite video game or like the meme that all the kids in seventh grade are talking about right now and my way of communicating love to him is like trying to attentively listen <laughs> um, I share all this to say that at least, you know, in the four decades I've been alive, I have been fortunate uh, to have a number of opportunities to experience loving relationships and learn how to communicate that love and receive it well. But this season I've been in, in the last several months, has brought new dimension to that. How do we communicate love when things don't feel so sweet? How do we give and receive love in the seasons that are really challenging. When love makes us feel particularly vulnerable, by which I mean it exposes us to hurt. As a lot of you know, this is real. In the last six months, cancer has turned the world upside down for two women who are incredibly close to me, both of whom I love very deeply my sister Mandy, and my dear friend Abby. And there are moments when I'm left unsure how to communicate love in this season. This week I called my friend Abby to check in. And I could tell as soon as we got on the phone just from the tone in her voice that she was having a hard day. Abby's now about three months in to aggressive treatment for leukemia. And it's exhausting. There have been multiple hospital stays, lots of inconvenient blood transfusions. Chemo is freaking rough. We do what we can to keep laughing. We shop for funky wigs. We watch inappropriate TV shows in the ER together. But as I've now seen up close with both Mandy and Abby, it's really a beast, this cancer treatment thing, that just takes so much out and it's not always clear if what you're getting is worth the cost. So I got on the phone this week with Abby and heard that even her, who often is, you know, like surprisingly cheerful in the face of it all, um, she didn't have the energy to muster any cheerfulness. It was just like, oh, I'm bummed. She'd just seen her oncologist for an update on where things were at and where to go from here. And, uh, you know, says, he says to expect at least another two years from now of treatment. 
before I'm done. And as she went on relaying the details with this kind of weight and resignation, it was just painful, painful to hear. Gone was the, I got this, I'm a warrior energy. She's now just in the weariness of it all. Like so over it already, ready to be done with the hard part of cancer treatment. Go back to some sort of normal life, even just the humdrum of taking your kids to school and going to shop at Costco, let alone working. And though she's ready to say, like, enough already, after three months of treatment, the doctors say, you know what, she's just begun. There are silences on the line, which is a rare thing for us. Because what can you even say? What does love look like in that kind of moment? We're winding down a teaching series. We've been exploring this Lent called Vulnerable Together. And in it, I've been inviting us to consider aspects of human vulnerability and what those might teach us about a God who is also somehow vulnerable. The idea that God is vulnerable is a paradoxical one, right? Most of us probably feel more comfortable thinking of God as invulnerable, as strong, as, as bigger than our earthly problems. There's something awe-inspiring about a God that's like beyond it all. Maybe we feel connected to that. We go to some beautiful part of creation, which we have lots of around here. We go to Muir Woods. We go to the coast. We go to Tahoe, right? We, we see the stars somewhere where you can see the Milky Way. Feel awed by the scope of it all. The God who made that whole scope. And while there's something comforting about divinity that's bigger than all our little worries and fears, it doesn't always feel particularly personal. There are moments when it feels like I'm in a moment where the whole world isn't opening up right now. It's closing in around me. Right? Moments when our hearts are fragile and overwhelmed and all that matters in the world right now is the one person we know and we love who's hurt, the child, the friend on the phone with whom we're sharing silence because there just aren't any words. And yet, while that silence lingers, the world is still going on. People are doing stuff. Facebook is still happening. Twitter, it just keeps blowing up. And in those moments, that expanse, that world that's unaffected by this personal pain, can feel really callous, can feel cruel. And the God that is participating in the rest of that happy world can feel far away. Today, I want to look together at a story that leans into this paradox, I believe, of a God who's bigger than our humanity, but is also just as vulnerable somehow as we are. It's a story about Jesus' response in one of those moments where words often fall short. After the death of his friend, Lazarus. First, I'm going to give you a little background, a little setup. The Lazarus story is a unique story. We only find it in the Gospel of John. You likely know the basic premise by many accounts. It's Jesus' most spectacular miracle that he raises Lazarus from the dead, right? If you've heard the name Lazarus at all, even if you know very little about the Bible, you probably have heard that of that story, Lazarus coming out of the grave, raised from the dead. Unless we think performing a resurrection is just something like Jesus spontaneously did on a whim, felt the move of the Spirit, and then here we go. The way John tells the story, there's this setup. Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, and he kind of gives us these clues that he knows what's going to happen, and he's intending to raise him from the dead. That's at least how John seems to want us to understand the story, that from the beginning, Jesus knows what's up. And he's, he's got a plan. 
So there's the setup that foreshadows the end of the story in which Jesus indicates this huge miracle is going to happen. And then, of course, there's the big miracle itself. Lots of scholars believe that's like the climax of John's whole argument he's been making throughout his account of Jesus' life, that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. The way John tells the story, this Lazarus miracle, you could say, is like the straw that breaks the camel's back. It's, it's what catalyzes his enemy. You could call it the match that lights the fuse leading to Jesus' unjust death not long after. But today, I'm not so interested in that part of the story. Neither the setup, nor the miraculous conclusion, not even the consequence of the miracle. Don't get me wrong, those things matter. But the miracle of resurrection is not the only story John 11 tells. While many are fascinated in this story by the parts that reveal this unique God nature, of Jesus, the one who can raise the dead, the invulnerable Jesus. Today, I'm interested in the parts that reveal his vulnerable human side. I wonder what it might mean for us in our vulnerability, because that, to me, is good news, too. So let's read that part of the story. When Jesus arrives in Bethany, starting with chapter 11, verse 17, You've got it on the handouts if you want it or on the screen. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days already. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. So many of the Jewish people of the region had come to Martha and Mary to console them over the loss of their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. Jesus replied, your brother will come back to life again. Martha said, I know that he will come back to life again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies, and the one who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She replied, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who comes into the world. And when she'd said this, Martha went and called her sister Mary, saying privately, the teacher is here and is asking for you. So when Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still in the place where Martha had come out to meet him. And then the people who were with Mary in the house, consoling her, saw her get up quickly and go out, and they followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the people who had come with her weeping, he was intensely moved in spirit and greatly distressed. He asked, where have you laid him? They replied, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Thus, the people who had come to mourn said, look how much he loved him. But some of them said, this is the man who caused the blind man to see. Couldn't he have done something to keep Lazarus from dying? Jesus, intensely moved again, came to the tomb. So between the setup and the miracle, this is the story we have. Jesus encountering two grieving women in the wake of losing their brother. Someone they obviously love deeply, and he loves deeply. From elsewhere in the gospel, as well as in this story, we get a sense of how close Jesus was, both to Lazarus and his sisters. You may remember the story of Jesus dining in the home 
with Martha and Mary. Martha's the busy hostess, admonishing her sister Mary for sitting at the rabbi's feet, pondering his teaching rather than serving him dinner. A couple chapters later, John will tell us the story of Mary, again, dining Martha and Lazarus, dining with Jesus in, in their home, and she anoints his feet with precious perfume, rubbing in the perfume with her hair, anointing him as if for burial. These people are connected. This is not just some spiritual leader who kind of floats in to offer a few words of encouragement. This is their friend. Yes, he's their rabbi as well, but he is their person. They are in each other's lives. So much so that when they sent word, the women sent word earlier in this chapter to Jesus that he was sick, the word they sent was, Lord, the one you love is sick. But Jesus, for his own reasons, didn't rush there. He waited for days. And now he's finally arrived at this intimate place of grief, and each of them has a response for him that names the depth of their pain. Martha says it first, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary shares the same lament when she finds him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The others who've come to grieve with and comfort these sisters, they have their own version. Couldn't he have done something? to keep Lazarus from dying. He opened the eyes of the blind man. Couldn't he have done something? These are the statements of the forsaken. The questions of the hopeless and bewildered. They come from that place we go when we are so heartbroken by life's turn of events, so confused about how this could possibly have happened, that we grasp at some way to understand some cause that could have changed our circumstance, some person to blame, that which feels so beyond our control. If we hadn't had so much financial stress, our marriage might have made it. If only I'd gone to the doctor sooner, that baby might have survived. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus arrives to this persistent question everyone seems to be asking, why didn't he come sooner? Why didn't he stop this from happening? Where was he? Now let's just name no matter who you are, that's a hard spot to walk into. I have to admit, I am not as mature as Jesus. I'm an Enneagram 3, which if you don't know what that means, it's fine, but a little context. I care a lot about people thinking I'm doing things well. That's kind of my natural orientation. I want you to think I'm doing things all right. I want you to feel good about it. And if I sense people are blaming me for something going wrong, particularly something that feels high stakes and emotional, I can get defensive. I would have been so defensive in this moment. But Jesus doesn't respond with any defensiveness. He doesn't deflect their hurt. He doesn't justify his behavior. He doesn't respond with self-protection but genuine love in the midst of pain. What does that look like? I notice a couple things. The first important thing I notice, and this is a, the first thing you can look to if you want to fill in the blanks, Jesus doesn't prescribe a process for the women's pain. We should have a slide for that. Jesus doesn't prescribe a process for the women's pain. Rather, he responds to each person's grief in a unique way, following their lead. If you pay attention, Martha and Mary do both start with that same statement, Lord, if you had been here. But they take it in different directions, right? 
And Jesus seems to follow the lead of the person that he's with in the conversation. Martha wants to have a conversation about hope. And Jesus meets her there. For her, she follows the, if you had been here, with, but even now, I know, whatever you ask from God, God will grant you. That's a declaration of hope. I don't think she's saying that because she expects he's actually going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Later when that happens, it seems she's pretty shocked and pretty clearly thinks that that, can't, that isn't possible. I think what she's saying is she is naming, she is heartbroken her brother has died. But that fact doesn't undo what she, her sister, her brother have all come to be passionate about participating in this in-breaking of God's benevolent way that Jesus seems to be bringing. So even if she grieves that Jesus couldn't or wouldn't, for whatever reason, didn't stop this scenario from playing out the way it did, it has not shaken her conviction that he is the sent one, the Messiah, God's anointed, the one who moves with the authority of the divine. She's saying, I still believe Jesus is connected to something beyond, and that is my source of hope, even in the face of grief. She needs that. She's reaching out to Jesus, pleading for assurance her hope is not misplaced, and Jesus meets her. He encourages her with his own hopeful words. Your brother will come back to life again. Martha assumes he's talking about a life beyond in the future, but Jesus seems to kind of correct her. He calls her to trust that in his very self, right now, is life that somehow endures. Resurrection that somehow breaks through even death. Life in the midst of loss that is available to all who put their trust in him. A little Greek lesson here. He uses a word in Greek, called pistiuo. Probably didn't say that right. But that word is often translated believe, right? That's how it's translated here. When I hear the word believe, I think of something that's happening cerebrally, like in my brain. I'm consenting to an idea. It's a mind thing. But the word here could also be um, better translated perhaps in trust, to trust in. To, it's like a more of a verb. It has more of that sense of like living into, in trust. Does that make sense? Active trust, to entrust oneself into. Jesus is meeting Martha's questions with assurance that she can put her trust in him and that that trust somehow has meaning. You could say you could, that this phrase is actually, I am the resurrection and the life, the one who entrusts themselves to me will live even if he dies, and the one who lives and trusts in me will never die. Do you trust this? Yes, Martha responds. And she gives this pure declaration of faith. Now, I gotta say, Peter gets so much credit for being the one who like spoke out the identity of Jesus as this like clear, you are the son of the risen God. She has just as clear a declaration of faith right in the wake of her brother's death. I think that's pretty awesome. This girl can preach, right? Even in the midst of grace, yes, I am entrusting myself. I trust that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of God who comes into the world. Even when all is lost, even when nothing makes sense, even when I am so heartbroken and disappointed, I still trust you are the Messiah. If that's not resurrection, faith that endures through death, what is? That is life. In the wake of loss, in unresolved questions, in the bewilderment of heartbreak, Martha is looking for hope beyond her present circumstances, and Jesus is there. He meets her in that place. He does not prescribe what process her pain should take, 
he follows her lead and he meets her. But as we've seen in other stories, Martha and Mary are not the same woman. Mary does not eagerly rush out to meet Jesus, seeking spiritual solace. She is all in her feelings. She stays in the house. Not clear because she doesn't know that Jesus is there. Right? I kind of get this sense. She stayed because she had some words for Jesus she was not ready to say yet. Right? But then Martha comes and is like, he's asking for you. All right, well, I'm going to get myself to Jesus. And he's going to hear my wail, which I think is what it is for her. She approaches and she falls in a pool of tears at his feet. Interesting, Mary is always at Jesus' feet. At his feet learning Torah. At his feet wiping them with her hair. And now at his feet in grief. And with the wail, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, period. No but. Right? There's no declaration of faith. There is disappointment. There is heartbreak. Mary is in the place of raw desolation, and Jesus doesn't try to talk her out of it. He does not prescribe a process for her pain. Sometimes people want to talk us out of it. Miriam Greenspan is a psychotherapist and an author of a book called Healing Through the Dark Emotions. And in that book, she also shares part of her own story, how 10 years into her vocation as a therapist, she lost her first child, a baby boy named Aaron, who died two months after he'd been born. His whole life was lived in a hospital. And in the wake of his loss, Dr. Greenspan was understandably overwhelmed with grief, unbearably grief. But she noticed, as her grief played out, how uncomfortable other people felt around her when it seemed to stretch out too long, from weeks to months. And as a therapist, she could understand, according to the Diagnostic Statistical Manual 4, DSM-4, which is sometimes called like the psychiatrist Bible, right? Kind of names all the different conditions of mental health. Patients grieving the death of a loved one are permitted two months to exhibit symptoms like sadness, insomnia, loss of appetite, and if their grief persists beyond that, they may be diagnosed with depression and treated with prescription medication. And Greenspan writes, grief, perhaps the most inevitable of all human emotions given the unalterable fact of mortality, is seen as an illness if it goes on too long. People want to prescribe a process for our pain, right? How many of us have felt that tension between our own feelings and what others expect us to feel? But when Jesus encounters Mary at the tomb, he doesn't write her a prescription for medication. He doesn't preach her a sermon she's not looking for right now. Because Jesus does not prescribe a process for our pain. He lets her words of heartbreak and betrayal stand without any dispute. But Jesus does more than just stand as a witness to Mary's pain, though that is powerful. He does more than stand as witness to the pain He does something else. He allows himself to feel Mary's pain. And he enters into the helplessness of human vulnerability. He enters into the helplessness of human vulnerability. Yes, 
I don't think Jesus, like, has forgotten what is about to happen. He knows what's coming. He knows this moment of loss is not the last moment. He knows there's something around the corner, and in this case, like, very close. But that does not stop him from inhabiting fully this moment of pure grief. In the wake of Mary's emotional display, Jesus himself shows two strong emotions, emotions that are unique for him. First, there's an indignant kind of anger. It's an anger. The word in Greek is enimbrimisato. Enimbrimisato. We see it twice in this little passage. It comes in verse 33 and verse 38. Now, our translation says he was intensely moved. They don't say he was angry. They don't say he was pissed. They say he was intensely moved. Okay, But that does not give the full thrust of this feeling. The word generally refers to kind of an outrage, an anger, literally an anger that makes you snort. A snorting anger is the image, right? But y'all have seen that feeling, right? But it is a visceral feeling. That's not just like, I'm a little frustrated, I'm a little ticked, right? That is a visceral response. That is what Jesus is doing. And then when he approaches the tomb itself, and he sees the evidence of death with his own eyes, he weeps, right? Jesus wept. He joins those who have been shedding tears for days, He joins Mary, who's wailing at his feet, and he is overcome with grief, too, and weeps. Now, I read a lot of scholars this week who kind of, like, posture around what they think these emotions are about. And the weird thing to me is that, like, none of them think that Jesus feels sad or mad about Lazarus' death. Because they're all doing this logical, well, he knows he's about to rise from the dead, so that can't be He can't be sad because Lazarus has died. It must be something else. He's mad at the devil. He's sad that there is, you know, death in the world, like this bigger thing. But personally, this is real, y'all. I can't help but wonder if that's simply the musing of a lot of straight, cis, white, male theologians, as my, uh, the woman I like, I think is amazing, scholar Christina Cleveland calls them Theobrogians. Perhaps they don't see the value in emotional experience for emotional experience's sake. Amen? These dudes don't get it. That's what I think. Perhaps they do not see the value of truly understanding the power of entering into another's emotional landscape, of feeling with them. They don't get how transformative that is for our hearts how meaningful it is to receive. Wes Moore is an author and an activist. I think he gets it. I recently heard him interviewed in a podcast where he described the difference between what he called sympathetic love and empathetic love in a way I thought was so helpful and it illuminates what I think Jesus is about here. Sympathetic love, he said, is a love where you're basically saying, well, I'm doing this because I feel bad for you. I think he would call out a lot of white people for that. Westmore is a man of color who recognizes, I mean, he wrote a whole book about himself and another man of color named Westmore who could have had the exact same life. He, a Rhodes Scholar, this other guy is spending his life in prison. But really it was like a, this is not, this could have just as easily been me. And he, that's changed, that's, brought something out of him. It's not enough to just have sympathetic love. I'm doing this because I feel bad for you. An empathetic love is, I do this because your pain is also mine. Your pain is also mine. Let's name it. Empathetic love is not an easy love. It's a costly love. It's costlier than sympathetic love. Empathetic love is a love that hurts, but that choice to hurt with another has power. And this, I think, is the choice Jesus is making at the tomb. He is led by Mary into the desolation 
of human vulnerability, into the tragedy of it, into the grief of no consolation. This one death is connected to every death. We all have moments of desolation. And Jesus feels the weight of it all. And he's willing to sit in the dark with her. He allows himself to feel the dark of desolation. He weeps. He snorts with anger at the injustice of it all. He encounters the loss he loves with real empathy. When I hung up the phone the other day with my friend, after listening, after waiting in silence, after praying for her, after ending the call, I put down the phone and I just fell apart. I couldn't help it. I just wept and wept and sobbed. I wept for the grief of this reality my friend is facing. My tears were mixed with my own kind of snorting rage. At the injustice of the moment, I felt angry that she has to face this. That my sister has to face her version. Sorry, I'm going to get emotional, y'all. They did nothing to deserve it. I feel enraged and grieved that I can't take it away. I can pick up their kids at school. I can bring groceries. I can't do treatment for them. My desire to help and comfort and make better seems so futile, like so little in the face of it. And in moments like those, I find more comfort in a God that weeps, in a God that snorts with us at the heaviness of it all at a God who's broken open. I find more comfort in that than a God who's above and beyond it all. Yes, I long for resurrection. I long for miracle. Yes, I'm actively trying to live a life and trusting myself in the one who calls himself resurrection and life, but in the moments before resurrection, in the moments when the world is closing in and it's hard to see beyond this here and now to some brighter day, I need to know that God's heart heaves with mine. I need to weep and not be rushed. No one needs to prescribe a process for my pain. I need the empathy of a vulnerable God. At the end of our passage... You see that second snort of anger from Jesus. That's the last verse I left you with. Again, it's like intensely moved, but that's the snort. He snorts as he walks to the tomb. If we kept reading, we'd see him perform the miracle right there. It's a great story. I encourage you to go home and read it. But today, I just want to end our story, our study of this passage, just pointing out that it is Jesus' snorting anger, the emotion he has entered into that compels his action in the story. He does not come in as the sympathetic savior who just like kind of floats in and then makes everything better, right? His miraculous action is catalyzed by his empathetic love. Jesus' heart heaves with us and that heave seems to have the power to bring deliverance. God's vulnerable empathy changes things. God's vulnerable empathy changes things. So throughout this series, Ginny, this is your warning. Throughout this series, I've been inviting us to attend not just to my voice, but to other voices who can share their own stories of vulnerability so before we end, I'm going to welcome Ginny, Ginny Prince, our own Ginny Prince, to come and share her story, her own reflection on vulnerability and empathy in her life. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Ginny. 
You've probably seen me around here a lot, maybe singing, or maybe you've come to my house um, for a small group. Uh, I'm happy to reflect on disability and empathy today and share more about myself with you all. Is it, is it, oh, better, okay, turned it up. <laughs> um, I was born prematurely and my optic nerve was damaged. This has caused me to be what they call legally blind. Um, essentially, you see 10 times better than I see. Um, your vision might be 20-20, mine is 2200. Um, what I can see at 20 feet, you can see from 200 feet away. Um, my eyes always move to get more information because my transmission cable, my optic nerve, is busted. Um, I have peripheral vision loss, so things pop out at me sometimes due to literal blind spots, and I'm basically useless in the dark of night. Uh, in addition to today's passage of scripture, I really think about Philippians 2, when God gave up God's divinity uh, to incarnate Jesus as a human being who could experience pain and limitation physically. He was thirsty and hungry, got mocked by the bullies, felt alone and forsaken. This is true empathy to me when you are moved to feel and act because you have experienced something deeply with or for another, like what Leah's talking about with her sister and her friends. Um, and for me, if, if this is the Christ, then I will keep trying to believe in the good news and allow um, Jesus to change, to change me. Um, when I was a kid, after my parents had fought to have me in mainstream classes instead of uh, disabled ones, I attempted to build empathy in my classmates as a strategy tool to survive and lessen the bullying I experienced for being different. These trainings I led, starting at like 10 years old, uh, were a great <laughs> retribution in some way. It was fun to laugh at the kids, to watch kids with blindfolds on make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with the wrong end of the knife, or watch the bullies get finally hit in the head with balls because they couldn't see. Um, it felt great. <laughs> but, but is that really empathy building? I'm like forced to ask myself as, a, as an adult now. Um, and so since my childhood, I've gotten through these, uh, these moments in regards to my vision impairment by trying to build empathy, basically, um, trying to lessen the trauma of what it meant to get bullied by these kids. Um, and uh, my family moved all the time, so it was like constant new swarms of bullies. Um, and you know, kids notice right away all the difference, right? Like when I'm trying to look for something, my head kind of goes back and forth. And anyway, it's, it, they would pick me out like immediately. Um, and college was tricky because of the amount of reading. Uh, it takes me a lot longer, and my assistive technology sometimes breaks. It's tricky. Um, there's always this dynamic of having to show your worst foot forward as a disabled person in school because you have to bring this sheet that's like, I'm disabled, you need to accommodate for me, like right away. It's like, hi, I'm Ginny, I can't see. Here's my form, you know? Um, and, uh, and then this like really intense pressure to prove that I can do the work the same as everyone else because of my vision impairment. So that's like double extra work. Um, after college, my university years were actually probably the easiest season I've had um, because of their emphasis on incarnational theology, on Jesus moving into the neighborhood and living with you and everyone can share responsibilities together. Um, when we lived together like that and lived in an interdependent kind of way, a lot of the things that most Christians, let alone secular people, do it sort of solved a lot of my societal issues. Um, there was a lot of talk about people on the margins, like uh, like uh, income or race, but they had a lot to grow in in terms of disability. Um, you can look it up later, but the church basically exempted itself from the Americans with Disabilities Act passed in the 90s. Um, so there was a lot there, but um, it was, it was a pretty good season for me. And then I met Luke, who has been a pretty good husband to me. He would, 
I never really believed that God would bring me someone that would sort of put up with the difference of blindness. Um, but he's great. He's, you know, a great partner. He laughs at things that need to be laughed at and is honestly very empathetic when, when needed. So I'm grateful for that. In this new season of parenting, it's really tricky. Um, I've been sort of coming to a new awareness, watching my kids get bullied, sort of remembering what that felt like, and also um, looking for work again after I took a few years off after university has been really hard. Um, since September, I've had 120 applications, 20 interviews, and only three have called me back after I disclosed my vision impairment. Um, and uh, even after, like, even when I do my damnedest to try to explain the technology and um, everything, that just people can't conceive of what it would like to work uh, efficiently and have that difference. Um, the employment rate for people with disabilities, with severe vision loss specifically, is only 30%. Um, many of them like me, are highly educated and skilled, and it still takes usually over a year to find work, um, even in this good economy and with government programs to assist in that process. So um, there's that. <laughs> and also, um, there's some like social things that I've been realizing that I haven't always focused on very much. Um, like, for example, I have trouble recognizing faces of people. So. If I'm further than like sitting directly across a coffee, uh, table from you, I'm probably not going to identify you by vision. I'll identify you by voice. Um, if I see you out of context, I might not recognize you. Uh, and there's other little things, like watching TV shows is actually kind of taxing for me. So um, I get confused because I miss visual clues, or I just it's just harder to do those kinds of things. Or the general like slapstick moments that I sometimes find myself in, like <laughs> at my graduation party, we were, went out to lunch, and there was this like uh, like hummingbird feeder <laughs> that I thought was an actual flower, and I was like, look at that really pretty flower, and everyone else was like, uh, Ginny, that's not a flower, <laughs> that's a plastic hummingbird feeder, and I'm like, oh, right, you know, of course it is, <laughs> at least at least it was pretty, right? <laughs> so. Um, Another thing that I've been realizing, or that I've been changing in my sort of middle years, I guess, is that I've been using my mobility cane more, because um, Oakland sidewalks are something to behold, and Oakland drivers are kind of worse. So, you know, add a few bikes, electric scooters, and people looking at their iPhones instead of looking up while walking, and, you know, it gets a little tricky. So, um, it also helps a little bit with legal protection in case something were to happen. Um, it's neat because I find that the cane actually res relieves some of my anxiety. I can do things like think while walking <laughs> instead of just navigating. Um, so that's been great. Um, it's also really interesting to use my cane out in public because other things change, like catcalls, for example, change. So, uh, hey, you know, like, hey, baby, I can't see you, but you can. Uh, you're, you can't see me, but I can see you. And. Mm, not going to finish that sentence, you know. <laughs> We're in church, so, uh, so I don't know. Like maybe you're a millennial who doesn't have a car and can understand what it's not, what it's like not to be able to get around, or um, understand the cost of an Uber lifestyle, or the time it takes to walk and be on the bus, or the emotional toll it takes to sort of be out in public on public transit. Um, maybe you're aging, experiencing changes in your body so that one or more of your body parts or senses isn't reliable or causes you pain. Um, my vision tends to get worse in bad weather or if I'm sick or if I'm tired. Um, it's, it is hard to know that your bodily like sensory input or your body is not reliable. That's difficult. Um, I, I think one of the gifts of disability is that uh, is actually this interdependence that I mentioned before. So. Sometimes when I'm open about needing help, it helps other give other people the permission to also admit that they need help. Um, so, um, yeah, I. It's difficult to think about um, some of the ableist tropes that 
uh, or like thinly veiled pity or like sympathy, I guess, like being an overcomer or an inspiration. Many people say that of me and that I just keep going in the face of adversity, but like I don't really see the real choice there, keep living or, or what, right? <laughs> so, um, I, you know, empathy is, is great, it's really helpful. Um, it also has its limits. I'm a blind woman, but uh, I will never understand what it's like to be black or brown and experience that element of racial discrimination to the oppression cocktail, shall we say. Um, so as you seek to gain empathy by listening or questioning or reading things or growing in friendships with others, remember that empathy and humility go hand in hand because actually living on the margins uh, can mean like, humiliation in, in a real sense. So um, yeah, I, I hope that as you pray for yourself and others, that you would be moved beyond pity to action to correct some of the systemic things and prejudice that um, people on the margins face. Um, but that you'll also allow yourself to be changed in the process. Um, then I think we'll all be changed for the better uh, because like the sisters of Lazarus trusted, I too trust that the work of God's presence is, is still not done. Thank you, Jenny. All right, we're, we're bringing it home here. I know this has been some heavy stuff this morning. I'm not gonna talk at you anymore, it's enough. <laughs> but I do wanna give you a moment to sit, because again, I recognize we've talked about some emotional things, but I just wanna give us a few moments to just sit with what's been stirred up between what I have shared, what Ginny shared. I'm gonna give you our questions that we're putting forward for reflection and conversation um, to just kind of put them out there. These are ideas of things we can talk about, but I do want, it might feel too personal to talk about them, and that's okay. But I do want you to reflect on them. And then you can talk about them when we, when we break up into groups for a few minutes or, or not, just talk about whatever feels helpful. And then I'm going to close our reflection time with a poem I heard this weekend um, that's also a prayer. And then we'll, uh, so that'll be kind of like our coming out of our, our moment of reflection. And then we'll take some time to break into small groups and discuss for five or seven minutes um, a little about what we're thinking about. So here are the questions you could consider. In areas of pain in your life, how could God support your process? What are you looking for now? Words of hope and encouragement, empathetic love that feels with you, something else. If you have an area of pain in your life, how would you answer that? Second, if Jesus was feeling with you now, what do you think he would feel? Or where do you feel challenged to move from sympathy to greater empathy in relationships in your life? You don't have to reflect on all of them, whatever feels most uh, resonating for you. So we'll just take a couple minutes and then I'll, uh, I'll pray for us with his poem. <laughs> 